Welcome to the Akashic Reading Podcast, presented by AkashicReading.com, the place where you can learn to access your soul's wisdom, or at least stop digging the hole any deeper. I'm your host, Terry Uctana, and today we'll be reviewing tips and tricks to help you break through blocks which prevent you from seeing, and help even the advanced student open more fully to experiencing the Akashics. There are some people who simply don't see images when working in the Akashics. In my classes, I point this out and give alternative ways to process the information received through non-visual means. However, most people can, and this makes it frustrating when they try repeatedly and just can't get anything. They listen to the meditation and feel something's happening, but don't really go anywhere, or They see colors and get impressions, but nothing concrete or tangible. Or they see things, but it's like wandering the set of a Broadway show. It looks real, but feels fake when you interact with it up close. For some, they actively use their imagination to create things, but this quickly becomes a monologue where they're talking to themselves rather than experiencing what the Akashics attempts to provide. Still others see things, but what they see is limited and doesn't seem to match what's being described in the meditation or experienced by others. So what follows are some tips to help with these situations, break through the blocks, and help even the advanced student open more fully. First is movement meditation. Most people come to think of meditation as stilling the body, getting into a relaxed state both physically and mentally, then quieting the mind in order to receive information. Unfortunately, while the description seems simple enough and is presented as simple, it's one of the most difficult forms of meditation to practice successfully and, for many, can become not only an insurmountable hurdle, but a negative experience which feels like spiritual judgment. Luckily, there are other means to reach a meditative state. The most readily accessible is movement. Instead of turning off the body to focus inward, this style of meditation uses the body to engage the part of the mind which interferes with the meditation process, thus allowing wisdom to flow. In movement meditation, you choose a movement which is rhythmic, repetitive, and can be maintained without strenuous effort over a certain period of time, usually 30 to 60 minutes. Common examples are long walks in a park or neighborhood, hiking, non-strenuously, washing dishes by hand, biking, jogging, swimming, knitting, hand quilting, and so on. In any chosen activity, the rhythm, like the rocking of a chair, is calming and soothing, while the action requires the problem-solving logic functions of the brain to focus on the task at hand and keeps us from injury. These two factors set the conditions for the meditator to drop into what is commonly thought to be a daydreaming state. Getting the mind from one state to another takes an average of 15 minutes. For most people, this transition will be an experience of what the Buddha described as monkey mind, where the problem-solving aspect of the person's mind not only starts working through whatever is most pressing at the moment, but also seeks to take advantage of unscheduled thought time to consciously process bigger issues or pending emotional matters. However, these are usually chewed through to a resolution, dead end, or pause within 15 minutes, plus or minus. At the same time, the rhythm of movement has created a relaxed state. 
Commonly, the transition from problem-solving into daydreaming has occurred when we move to investigating what-ifs, replaying conversations and social scenarios, even playing out what our life would be like in the future. We've been taught daydreams are just figments of our imagination, which exist only in the completely sealed-off safety of our minds. We're fascinated by stories which play on the question of, but what if they weren't? The thing is, our daydreams do have reality as a means of communication. In childhood, we unlearn and forget this, and therefore come to think of our heads as closed systems. We think things only get out or in our head when we act to make it so. To see something, we must look. To express something, we must act. As an aside, this is one of the main reasons why subliminal messages are illegal in advertising. They play on our erroneous assumption we control what gets in, thereby getting messages in under the radar without our consent or acknowledgement. Now, this is not to say our being taught the notion of a closed noggin is wrong. It's not, and in fact has a purpose. We're meant to focus on this life and not be distracted with extraneous things. In preparing for this embodied life, we agreed and even desired to have this brief respite from constant and instantaneous communication so we could explore ourselves fully with minimal disruption or negative consequences. So thinking we're a closed system is a good thing. However, it's not really true. As we knew when we were children, our daydreams are a conversation between the embodied reality we're experiencing and the greater reality of the world beyond this microcosm. This is why some people will have what they consider serial daydreams where the action seems to keep going on after they've returned to daily life. It's as if the daydream continues while they were away, and they're dropping in at a later point already in progress. More than likely it is, and they are. This is why deep and important truths about ourselves and the world around us seem to unfold from our daydreams. It's not all about our subconscious, if such a thing actually exists, but about an ongoing conversation happening only marginally in linear time. What I'm saying is, daydreaming is an Akashic meditation. What you experience isn't all in your head any more than what is said in a conversation over dinner is completely controlled by you. If you want to check this out for yourself, next time you're daydreaming about something, Try changing some random aspect. Try changing the setting, the flooring, the ceiling, or the sky. Try changing what the people are wearing. You'll find you either can't, or the change is momentary, and returns almost immediately to what it was before. It's as if you looked at the person you're having dinner with, told them you didn't like their eye color, and then tried to change it for them. They would just look at you funny. If you can change something in the scenario, then it's something you brought with you, something in your head. If it's something you can't change, then it's part of the conversation. It's either something the other party is trying to tell you, or it's part of the place. Either way, it's not irrelevant, but has meaning, and you should pay attention. To convert daydreaming into a meditation or journey, all that needs to be done is to be aware when you've moved from normal awareness into daydreaming. Then start guiding the process. Guiding can be done by listening to a recording of a meditation or by going through memorized meditation steps. Most people find that once in the daydream state, 
it takes no effort at all to direct the process. Then there's imagination. Something to know about the Akashics is you don't need to use your imagination to work there. The Akashics is just as real as your couch or your car. If you don't have to imagine either of those to use them correctly, you don't need it for the Akashics. The door you'll see in order to access your Akashic room exists. It's not a metaphor, not an image, nor is it some hypnosis trick. It may look like something you've seen before, be like a door you've read about or even seen in movies, or be something entirely different than the image you had in mind. The concept, I'm not imagining this, is easiest to grasp for those who see doors which are completely the opposite of what they expected. It's a shock to the system to see something you wouldn't have come up with on your own, even in a dream scenario. However, for most people, the door will seem familiar, match their expectations of what such a door should be, or just feel right. This is not because they're imagining it to be that way, but instead the Akashics using forms which get the point across most accurately and directly. When discussing this aspect of the Akashics, I use the term vocabulary. While we may think of vocabulary as being about words due to our early school years when we memorized vocabulary lists, there is also such a thing as visual vocabulary. This is something artists have used for centuries. It's the reason we can easily understand complex actions when described via stick figures. It's also highly developed in media, so we can get a ton of information from a simple setting or a movement of the camera. And of course, there's the symbolism in dreams, the archetypes of mythology and therapy, let alone all the gods and goddesses and spiritual pantheons. We each of us have a personal visual vocabulary which provides us entire concepts or even layers of information and meaning with one simple image. As one of the main points of Akashic work is for us to gain wisdom and understanding from the endeavor, all the beings of the Akashics pull from this vocabulary to communicate with us. Think of this the same way you would if you wanted to speak to someone from a foreign country. The initial communication between you is sorting out what language to use at what level of complexity. Once this is figured out, even if it's a hodgepodge of gestures, pictures, and facial expressions, communication starts to flow. When working in the Akashics, If you're trying to imagine what's there, it's like asking to have a conversation, then ignoring the other person entirely and having a monologue in their general direction. On the other hand, because the Akashics is using your personal visual vocabulary, it can seem like you're imagining everything or it's all made up. This can be frustrating if you're trying to find answers to an important question or trying to move past a block or long-term persistent problem. However, if you stick with things and repeat the lesson or meditation more than two or three times, you'll start to notice a change. Images, experiences, and beings will stop being quite so familiar and start taking on visuals which are more specific and precise to the message or the meaning of things. It becomes noticeable items and settings are no longer the way you would have imagined them to be. Students can speed up this process easily by the use of their hands. When in the Akashics, you have physical form. Usually this looks like you, or a slightly improved version of you, and so you'll have hands. Reaching out in the Akashics, 
touch whatever it is you're curious about, whether that's a piece of furniture, an animal guide, or a structure. I wouldn't recommend reaching out and touching beings like librarians. It's considered just as rude there as it is here. The information we take in through touch resists imagination. We may imagine something is smooth, but then touch it and find it's textured and warm. Let your fingers do the exploring and you'll quickly realize how little of this is about what's going on in your own head. Which brings us around to touch. Touching or handling things in the Akashics is a great remedy for many different problems, including not being able to see things clearly, misinterpreting things, imagining things are there or not there, or proving it's not all in your head. And as you may have noticed, in Dreamtime or through other Akashic experiences, while sight is our key sense in embodied life, it can be complicated in the Akashics. Our minds can play tricks with us, making something look one way when it's actually somewhat or quite a bit different. This is why it's so helpful to hold things or touch them rather than just looking. Not only does this help you focus, but your sense of touch will put the lie to any information your mind is trying to convince you of. You can use your hands somewhat like a blind person and map your Akashic room. From the door you enter, turn left, hold your hands out in front of you, and start walking. Whatever you come in contact with, touch it to verify what you're seeing, or not seeing, to get a full sense of the object or feature. This includes furniture, knickknacks, windows, and so on. The more you're in physical contact with the object, the more information you'll gain, somewhat like a dried sponge coming into contact with water. You won't be knocked off your feet, but your perception of the item in the room will expand as you get filled up with knowingness. Follow the wall, not your visual perception of the room, to discover what new areas you weren't aware of, items you've skipped over, and to build skill with your Akashic perceptive acuity. Difficulties seeing in the Akashics can be about emotional blocks, personal lessons to learn, or even needing to step back and do some more grounding and healing. They can also derive from the simple fact our life is excessively stressful, exhausting, or even in survival mode, which means we aren't able to hold space for this type of spiritual work. However, it's more often about technique, developing new skills, or a better understanding of what we are and aren't experiencing. These troubleshooting tips should help you resolve the technical issues you're having. And that's all the time we have this week. If you're interested in knowing more, check out my website, akashicreading.com. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please consider supporting it by subscribing on Patreon. You can sign up for my Akashic Book Club, where we read books on all aspects of the Akashics, see all my other offerings, and get regular updates about what I'm working on at patreon.com. Slash Terry Uptana. Thanks. Bye.